0: Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts of this program. We have a very special treat for you today. Denny McGuire is with us. Denny, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Jeff. This is my first podcast, so I'm kind of excited. Uh,
0: well, well, you get the award for doing, well, perhaps the most preparation of anybody. <laughs> and But you also have, you know, this is a treat for me because we have known each other for a while, mm-hmm. 15 mm-hmm. probably years plus. And then we were just recounting before we hit record some of the stories that we've mm-hmm. shared over the years. We both live in Houston, or if you call the Woodlands Houston, you know, mm-hmm. Woodlands people, it, Maybe it's a nicer place than actual Houston, a little bit north. But and I'm not even going to do a big intro. You've had such a storied career, built a business, sold it. You know a lot about the nonprofit world, about the for profit world. And I don't want to pigeonhole you into a one or two sentence intro, because I think we may even make this a two part podcast because you have so much uh, wisdom and experience to share. But why don't we just start out with place we normally start out with on the podcast, which is your family, where you grew up, how that was growing up. What was that like for you?
1: Well, I was going to mention beforehand that um, I have put a little thought into this. I think it's significant when you get a chance to share and share what God's done in your life. And I don't want to brag, but I'm a person who makes God look good. And uh, <laughs> I say that my principal verse is 1 Corinthians 127. God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And then, uh, right along with that's Proverb sixteen nine. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. It's funny, but almost all of the key decisions of my life, I've been wrong on. Which is a great way to a great way to start something out. But it's true. So anyway, I'm the oldest of ten. And uh, wow. oftentimes when I talk about my family, I don't talk about a family tree, but we, we kind of have a family bush. <laughs> so, so my mom uh, was a great mom. She was a, a waitress. And so getting by on waitress salary and then some other kind of things was really hard. And so I, I think I had my first job when I was 12, working in a store, sharing, uh, helping to pay food bills and things like that. And um, we've kind of grown along the time. So. In a crisis, we're real, we're real close, we're spread out, but we're real close. And uh, so growing up that way, it was hard, but it was, as you, if you look back at your life, it was, it's made you strong and it just, there were so many benefits to that. So the thing, I was like a a solid 2.3 GPA Yeah. and uh, I felt lucky to get that. I majored in math and uh, things like that, which I should never have because I wasn't that smart. But I was able to graduate from college and uh, we lived in Bloomington, Illinois and went to ISU and it was a local college. Otherwise, I never could have got through it. So, you know, with taking care of the family and things like that, I was just kind of an average person kind of poking around. The thing that changed my life was the military. And I recommend this to others. It was back in 68, 69 when we were all being drafted. So as soon as you finish college you knew you were going to be drafted. And so I was drafted and went to basic training, which was pretty easy. You know, I think that was six or eight weeks. And then after that, I was a little bit surprised, but I was slotted for advanced infantry training. And I thought, ooh, now this is starting to get serious, Fort Polk, Louisiana. And I started thinking, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well go to OCS, Officer Candidate School. And then I thought, okay, now if you're going to do that, you might as well do a combat arms. And so there's. Infantry and I was thinking, you know, infantry, you know, the casualty rate there is like 80%, 90%. Wow. That that's a little I'm gung-ho, but not quite that gung-ho. <laughs> then there's then there's artillery and artillery, you know, what kind of job you're gonna get, you know, artillery and then armor, you know, kind of the same thing. Well, I drove a tank, you know. Then there was combat engineering. I'm thinking, this is great. You know, I'm gonna learn how to build roads and bridges and that'll be perfect for my uh, practical very very practical so uh but like many things in life and this is something that i've learned and i'm sure a lot of your listeners have learned uh, you can plan all you want but that doesn't mean it's going to happen so we show up that first day and uh you all have probably seen uh you know top gun and you got the the tack officers with the black baseball caps that's what we had instead of uh you, you know the smokies with the uh flat hats And so just stand around, we're all there, we're all in our dress uniforms, and then all of a sudden, you know, to be clear, all hell broke out, yelling, screaming, and they had us low crawling down this company street, that white gravel, just tearing up your clothes and everything, and we get to what used to be the company mess hall, and they stop us and they say, we just want to get your attention. There are some people who think that combat engineers, they build roads and Bridges and things like that. And the reality is we hire civilians to do that. What you all are about is EOD, explosive ordnance demolition, bombs, booby traps, things like that.
0: The dangerous stuff the civilians don't want to do.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And and then another shock was that, uh, you know, Echo Class, that's who we were, Echo Company. The last group from Echo Company that went to Vietnam had 100% casualties, 100% killed or wounded. And so the message was, this is serious, it's going to be tough, and uh, hang in there. And so the first 23 weeks, about the first eight weeks, were true physical and mental stress. Then there was about seven weeks before we had a balance of education, training, and physical and stress. And then that last uh, seven weeks, if you could survive Ranger School, week of Ranger Week, and then uh, Escape and Evasion Course, you were gonna, you were gonna make it. And so the stress and uh, whatnot it was kind of crazy. One thing that was really in my mind, and it's been a lesson for me the rest of my life, is that uh, one day there was about week six. Fort Belvoir is right outside of Washington D.C. Hot. This is the summer, and it seems like wherever we went, we always ran, of course, and then you had all your gear on and you're carrying your weapon and there was this hill and it wasn't heartbreak hill i've looked for the name but it could have been heartbreak hill and so you're having to run up this thing and especially run it up with your weapon over your head you just couldn't do it it was like a quarter mile up there and you would just be crawling up and then there was this one guy lauren and uh remember his last name we will just leave it off for right now but he kind of was shaped like a, a light bulb you know the bottom part of the light bulb and he had a squeaky voice he had a lot of trouble running and we all knew Lauren's never going to make it, you know, right. and we were, we just, we were just amazed that he lasted as long as he could. And then there was this one day when we were trying to go up the hill and there were like three tack officers standing around screaming at him, screaming at him, berating him. And it was horrible. It was kind of like, well, we understand. I am thinking to myself. I kind of understand tough training, but this is just sick. And so I, it wasn't me, but one of the guys ran and grabbed his steel pot, uh, you know, helmet. And then somebody else grabbed something. I think maybe I grabbed his uh, gas mask, his protective mask, we call it, because it was light. Uh, But other people grabbed stuff, and we got them to the top. And when we got to the top, we were so excited. And we just said, you know, everybody makes it to the top, you know, whatever it takes. And uh, so we did that. And then over time, we just didn't have to do that hill anymore. So at the end of the course, uh, they came to me and they said, would you like to be a TAC officer? And most of us had thought about a little about that. And the idea was, if we're going to Vietnam and the casualty rates are as high as you say, we want to learn something and be an attack officer and order people around and chase them around wasn't it. And they said, well, at least look at the manual. And so I looked at the manual and I opened the manual and I was stunned. All of the stuff, the harassment and things we were doing, it was all programmed there was a plan for all the whole thing. And it started with crawling us down the street to make sure that we understood the seriousness of things and all that. And then it got to week six. Week six, day one, no soldier left behind. And so what we were being taught going up that hill was we were going to be going up that hill until we came together and pulled everybody up the hill. And as you know, in the military, it's scary to get shot. It's scary, scary to die. But the thing you're most afraid of is being left behind. yeah. And so what we were being taught there was no man gets left behind. No woman gets left behind. No soldier gets left behind. And uh, as I thought about that, I wasn't a Christian at a time, and I really didn't know any scriptures or anything. But I'm thinking in the midst of this, all the stuff that we're doing, there's a purpose to it. yeah. And later in my life, I look back at my life and, all, and the things that have happened, the things that have been really hard, like going through a bankruptcy, Going through some challenges, all of us go through were really, really hard. But now I can see where God is faithful to his word. And those things that were meant for evil, God has used for good, just over and over again. And so it's changed my perspective about things. As we go through life, it's I've come to learn that, you know, our training here on our time here on earth is really just training for heaven. And so all the things that happen are quizzes. And the question is: am I going to pass the quiz or not pass the quiz? If I don't pass the quiz, then I got to run up that mountain again. Run run up that hill. So that one of the things that have really has changed my thinking, and that plus actually graduating gave me confidence. Like the idea of being able to run five miles was never in my vocabulary. Also, like I'm not not good at heights, but the idea of rappelling off of towers and you kind of go off those backwards. If you would have saw me do that, you would say that's the bravest guy in the whole world. And no, no, I was just a I was more afraid of the tech officers than I was in
0: up. <laughs> but I like this. I love that story of what did you call it? Heartbreak Hill yeah. and Getting up to the top of that. I love this idea that you came out of that because I thought where you might go with that, frankly, is what I wrote down is life is a team sport, which is one of our principles here at our company. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting where you went. And I'm sure that's part of it. And you've always worked in teams and we'll get into a lot of those stories. But but I think it's interesting, the lesson you took away from that, which is even the hard things have mm-hmm. a purpose, you yes. know, that God will right. use the hard things to teach you a lesson. And, and we always talk about, you know, you can only see God's work really in the rear view mirror, not absolutely. over the hood. You know, yeah,
1: absolutely. There's so much to that story. One of the things is Lauren graduated. Wow. And I'm sure he was an excellent officer. And I think of, and I'm sure all of us have these stories of people that we saw who maybe initially we misjudged and given some encouragement and support, they've really blossomed. And then on the other side of that, I look back at my career and there were so many people that were just average kind of people that helped me tremendously. And, And that starts with one of my first jobs, having someone teach me how to properly mop a floor. Yeah. And that was a good paying job. It wasn't a lot of status, but it was a good paying job. But over in Vietnam, this next story I'll tell you is, got to Vietnam and, um, well, the job I had after OCS looking to do mines and demolitions or platoon this, I was assigned to Pulse Data Processing in Fort Belvoir, right out of Washington, D.C., a great job. And back then there were card processors. They were kind of like the computers, if you can imagine a computer with 4K. So that's what we worked on during that. It was like an eight to five job. And then as you may or may not know, Washington DC was a training ground for Delta stewardesses. And so, you know, we had a ministry there, a, a nice balance. Now, something different that they do today that they didn't do then is one day I'm, you know, In DC. And then literally 10 days later, I'm in Vietnam and I've had no training whatsoever. Wow. And so I remember you get off the plane and all the enlisted people, they're in a line and they go and they get their equipment and they go straight out to where they're being assigned. For the officers, we got some equipment, but then it went to kind of a a pooling area where we got selected to do, you know, whatever. I can remember driving, uh, we were in a bus. And I'm looking at the bus and I'm saying, what is that heavy wire on the windows? And I said, oh, now I remember. That's so people can't drop grenades into the bus. And I'm looking around and these, I'm trying to remember all that basic training I had, which was great training, but it was really still. So I get there and actually spent a little time in the field. I was pulled out of that. And one of the people that I helped uh, during the post was during my time, uh, you know, after graduation was a a guy who was a super nerd. He was captain, and uh, no one paid much attention to him. And I just took him to lunch a few times. Nothing special. We didn't hang out at night or anything, but I was just nice to him. And I'm convinced that somehow he got me out of the field, which I was working with really noisy dozers, D7 dozers. Everybody, including all the enemy, knew who we were at. And he got me onto Long Bien, where I was put in charge of the ammunition system for Vietnam. So all the ammunition that was ordered, where it was on the boats, where it was delivered, that was on my system. And so it was like the best job over there. So I went from a um, really difficult place to place that was surrounded by bunkers. It was like TV. And we had, when we ran the computer systems, there were armed guards outside, you know, and then everything was uh, in a safe when we left. And so that job, and I... Traveled a lot around Vietnam and to the different animal supply points, but that was a job that was key for me surviving Vietnam. But also, when I got out of Vietnam, had been a, a great job at State Farm. And so, a lot of times, people will ask me, you know, tell me about your career. How did you get started? Yeah. And uh, kind of the summary is: uh, in those years from like '72 to 1988, uh, I came back from Vietnam. I got a job at State Farm and a Uh, And and let me tell you that story. I kind of debate for time. But uh, so the way they did it back then is not how they do it now. So I'm in Vietnam. One day I fly to Fort Dix, turn in my stuff at Fort Dix and come home. So literally, you know, certainly 48 hours after I'm in Vietnam, I'm home. Then I wake up that morning and uh, no one's around. And I thought, you know, I ought to go sign up for my GI benefits just because that's something I won't do. So I go down and talk to the guy and sign up. It doesn't take long. And he says, uh, well, are you going to sign up for unemployment? And I said, no, no, I don't want employment. I said, uh, I just don't want to do unemployment. I said, really, I got a two week early out and I'm going to go to college and I'm going to chase girls. And he's, oh, he says, I understand. I understand. But he says, you ought to sign up for unemployment. That's no. And he says, you deserve it. And I began thinking. I really do deserve it. I've been gone 36 months through good times and bad times. So I said, Sign me up. And he says, No, no, you need to go to that guy over there in the corner. So I walk over the corner and I say, The guy over here says, I want to sign up for unemployment. And he says, Well, or be for a job. And I said, No, you don't understand. You know, literally three days, I was in Vietnam. I'm home. I got two weeks early out. I'm going to go to college. I want to chase girls. He's Oh, he says, I understand. I understand. And he says, You do deserve it too. And he says, Now, you understand, I may have to send you for an interview. And uh, I don't know about an interview. He says, Well, you know, just think about it. That very day, about two o'clock, he calls me and he says, Hey, State Farm has got this incredible job. They're growing real fast. They've got 26 regional offices. They're building a huge home office here. They put together a group to do the planning to size the computer the capacity and all that. He says, you need to go talk to him. I said, uh, no, no, I really have a plan. And he said, no, it'd be a good experience for you. So I go over there and, you know, there's IGA stores. I don't know if those are still around, but it was an empty IGA store and State Farm is growing so fast. I walk in the front door and there's literally 100 or 200 clerical people working there. And back then, probably the average age of somebody in the, U- in the U.S. was like 30 years old. And so in this room, there was probably like 80% females and probably 80% of them were like in the 20 to 30 year old range, which is, you know,
0: perfect for you at the time.
1: Yes. (laughs) And so I go up and so up there, there was a stairs and I go up the stairs and I meet Nick Fortney and uh, meet Nick and and Nick is a new supervisor who has just finished his first class on interviewing. I'm the first person he's going to interview. And he says, How long have you wanted to work for State Farm? <laughs> and I said, Oh, oh, I said, It's been minutes. State Farm, State Farm is a wonderful <laughs> company, but really, I don't want to work for State Farm. And to be real honest with you, I was in Vietnam just three days ago and I, I really came back to get it early out and go to school and chase girls. Oh, my gosh. And he says, You know, they never did teach me about that at the interviewing school. Uh, And it turns out he was a really cool guy. Yeah. And he says, let me tell you about the job, which was an amazing job. So I go back and uh, the next day I get a call and they hire me. They want to hire me $14,000, which was a big salary back then. And I said, no, I didn't tell HR why, but I said, no. And then two days later, they gave me a call and I took it. Wow. So, so I started at State Farm, which was a key to me getting, it was a key to me meeting my wife, Marty, because she works there. Yep. Getting great training. And then from there, because it was so leading edge, Arthur Anderson, now Accenture, hired me away and we went to DC. And that was an essential part of my career. They sent me to Houston to work on a you know computer planning job for First City. Yep. At first city, I they hired me away to put in the first ATM system in Houston. Yep. So I became a, I was one of the leaders in ETF had a great mentor there with a guy named Hugh Barrett who came from Citicorp was a strategic planning and then after did that then Anderson hired me away again to do business planning and stuff and they sent me to Andrews and Kurth, really good law firm there in Houston they had about 150 attorneys to do help them do a business plan and then they hired me away and a partner level job and to help them move from what was the Exxon building now to what's J P Morgan Chase building now that beautiful
0: building. So I worked there for like seven years and uh, that was a great job.
1: And that was a time when I.
0: You're kind of doing just to set the stage. You know, some people may not know this. There's like a partner level role within these law firms. You were like the business side of the law firm, right?
1: Yeah, I was one of the first ones to do that. So I was kind of a pathfinder doing that. And uh, it was a great job for the first five years. And then it was great job, but and it paid well, but it was boring, boring, boring. And at age 40, I said, I'm too young to stagnate. I want to do something different. Yeah. Up to that point, I uh, started going to church. I didn't I didn't know I thought Jesus was somebody the Baptist made up. You know, I didn't know anything. Yeah. And my wife Marty was a Baptist preacher's daughter. Okay. And so because I was working hard, I would go to church with her when she would make me do it. And in the church, I'm putting down it's us putting down chairs and helping like that and thinking, sometimes I'd even take up the offering. I thought, can can you do this and be a heathen? I don't know. But I got involved in a detailed Bible study. And when I when I got to the detailed Bible study, I said, No man could have written this book. Mm. No man could have written it. And if man didn't write it, then God had to write it. And then if God wrote it, To the extent you understand it, you need to do what it says. Right. And so I did ask, you know, Jesus into my heart was saved. And uh, we started going to church and uh, it was just great. And one day I'm driving down the road and just just really feeling like Billy Graham's going to call me, you know, any minute now and just tell me how great I'm doing. And I say, Marty, you know, almost every week we put $20 in the offering plate. And she says, I know, but I really wish we could tithe. And I kind of went crazy. You know we moved here from d c you've had a great job as a legal secretary. we had to get another house, car. we have a house. you're not working anymore. we have a child. you know I have my brothers and sisters that I help take care of. There's just no way there's just no way and through process of I describe it as playing punch with God hitting each other in the shoulder in which he won
0: he tends uh, to always win
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's um we did come to the point that. The tithe, We learned about tithing. Yeah. And God blessed us through that. And mm. uh, and both of us really enjoy giving. And so that time where God bailed us, out, you know, when we committed to tithing, it actually got harder before it got easier. Mm. But then that's when, you know, I got hired by Andrews and Kurth and that doubled my salary. Okay. You know, things like that. So anyway, there at Andrews and Kurth, once we moved into the J.P. Morgan Tower, you see that shaved side with yep. those big officers there yep. floor to ceiling i had one of those yeah and uh many times i'd stand at that window and just thank god and thank god for how he'd blessed us and, and i would tell god even if i wasn't here in his office you know i would still thank you i would still honor you and uh evidently god was listening <laughs> uh, <laughs> because once again he, he
0: usually is okay
1: yes and um so anyway, what happened was I, at eight, you know, I, I doing well, but I left and I went into business with friends and the business was our business model was if one Remax franchise is good, 15 have to be great. Right. And uh, really liked the Remax model because the way the, you know, re- normally works is there's a 3% commission for the buyer's agent and the seller's agent. And then you split the three percent with the broker. And you know, you don't make a lot of money, but you don't have any expenses. The Remax model was every week, every month, no matter what, you had to pay five or six hundred dollars to cover expenses. But after that, you got to keep everything. Right. And that model attracted all the best people. And it probably would have worked well, except that I don't know if you remember back then, but oil was at $30 a barrel and gonna to go to $50. And instead it went to 10. And yes. we invented uh, see-through buildings. Yes. And
0: that uh, was a painful period in the oil patch in Houston. Oh, similar. yeah.
1: It was a painful thing at our house, too, because uh, we had we lost everything. We did keep our house and we kept you can keep your couple of horses the way it goes. But it was forced into bankruptcy and then had nothing coming out of that. And uh, we did things like, well, one of the things is we had a little equity in a customized van we had. And we took it to Lawrence Markle Chevrolet, if you all remember them, but we used to deal with them a lot. And we went there and we found a cheaper new car that you actually had some cash when you you got some cash back when you bought it. And uh, we had some equity. And so I remember going in and talking to Ken, who we dealt with many times before. And he says, well, I assume we're going to roll all the equity you have in the van into buying this new car. And I said, no. And he said, I got to be honest with you. I don't have a job. I don't know how we'll pay for this. We just need the cash just to make it, you know, week to week. And he said, I know exactly what you're talking about. He said, the same situation happened to me. He says, let's figure out how we get you the most money out of this. And so we were hoping for 2000 and we got 4,000 out of it. Wow. So things like that were happening and things like, I tell you this because it was an incredible learning curve. Uh,
0: We were big givers at church. There were times when we gave change. Yeah. There were, Marty wanted to go to a ladies conference and somebody had to give her the $15. Right. So it was really difficult. And then, so there was a day when we'd exhausted everything and I said, Marty,
1: uh, we're going to get a call today or tomorrow, and it's going to say that, you know, our preauthorized mortgage draft bounced, and, and we just don't have any money. And so literally that morning at 10 o'clock, the lady called, and the lady said, Mr. McGuire, your, your draft came through. And she said, um, we went ahead and paid it, but if you could get the money in as soon as possible, that'd be good. And that was when the savings and loans crisis and everything was happening. It just that never happen. happens. Yeah. At that instant, I, God, like, spoke to my heart mm. and said, you are faithful in your giving. I'll take care of you. Wow. That afternoon, a gentleman named Dick Teal, who I had mentored at Arthur Anderson, called me and says, hey, I've got you a job at Enron. It's just a project manager job. It's a 1099 job, but it's a job. And uh, that saved us. So started that working. That afternoon.
0: There. I mean, I think that that's afternoon. just. You yeah. know, I think. You know, we were we were talking a little before we started recording about how uniquely God talks to each of us and he has Mm -hmm. these unique messages for us at specific times. And I can tell from the from the tone of your voice, you know, how even all these years later, how painful that period was and you really needed God knew he needed to deliver something quickly to you. Like That's (laughs) such an intimate, beautiful story, Mm -hmm. right? Like you know what, I ain't going to wait till tomorrow or even next week. Yeah. I'm going to deliver it this afternoon in that phone call, just the way he orchestrates everything. That's just, that's amazing. Well, it
1: was, it, you learn so much. And oftentimes it's later when you can look back and learn, right. but learn, but God, God is faithful in his giving and he's seldom early, but he is faithful. And so we went to Enron. And uh there's a the CIO there was Alberto Goodday and Alberto was a survivor of the Bay of pigs, pigs uh invasion. Wow. And he uh got made to Mar- America actually lived in the basement of a church for several months, and then he was a self made man who developed some businesses and then joined uh Enron as CIO and just a great guy.
0: And this is like eighty eight, eighty nine, right? Yeah,
1: eighty mm-hmm. Uh 90, right right in then. And uh so I have this little job, and you remember the big office I had with the big floor-to-ceiling right. windows. Well, my cubicle—I <laughs> had a little office. It was a cubicle. You couldn't find that thing unless you were dropping breadcrumbs. And so, <laughs> really, and not exaggerating. And I have this job as a project leader, and we're making a little bit of money, you know. And then. Enron and EDS announced that they're doing, they have a letter of intent for a $750 million 10 year outsourcing contract. And it was just the letter of intent. It didn't have the details.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, it turns out my background at Anderson and State Farm was perfect to help them do that deal. Okay. And you, you know, Jack Tompkins. Yep. Jack Tompkins was the CFO. And so I was working for him. And so the key to that deal is we'll give you everything you're doing today for the next 10 years. And if you use more of it, you have to pay more, but if you use less, you get credits. And so the key is how do you describe those baselines? And it's very technical, but that's what I do how to do. So I helped them do that. And that, uh, that was, we were making some good
0: money at that point. So, so let me clarify. So you're working as a contractor for Enron, negotiating right. this contract that EDS was helping do the outsourcing agreement, right? So they were right. helping with this outsourcing and we you were, were kind of working on the contract, right?
1: Yeah, we were working, we were uh, yeah, negotiating the contract.
0: Exactly. Now, so this gives you, so it's just amazing, this string of all these things from this kind person that we think got you into a safer place <laughs> that yeah. taught you lessons in the military, uh-huh. all the way through all of these kind of strategic jobs, that land you in this, this now, this is a very key moment in here, right? Because yeah. this ended up kind of helping you launch a company that ends up being an amazing success. So yeah. how, how's that bridge happen?
1: Yeah. A couple of little points along the way. I had my first check, my first check. And it was in Pennzoil Tower. I'm not sure what the new name of that is. But I still I call was it there. That. <laughs> and I looked around and there was a gentleman there named Will Armada. And Will was one of the partners audit partners and everybody respected Will. Will Will was just, you know, kind of the guy.
0: I think he signed and, my CPA certificate. I don't have it in my <laughs> office, but I'm pretty sure his name is on it. Yeah.
1: Well, when I left Anderson Kurth to take this job, I talked to Will. And then you cannot imagine what oh gosh. When I left Anderson Kurth, I knew it could fail. And what I prayed is I said, God, you know, I can lose everything, but don't let me cause the enemies of God to blaspheme God. You know, David and Bathsheba, the prophet went to David and said, you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme. And I said, I don't want to be one of those Christians who's, you know, holier than thou, he's got all these great this and that, and then fails. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I was just so devastated. cried like a baby often, and I didn't cry. But anyway, I'm there in the lobby cashing my first check and there's Will and I'm looking around and I'm saying, is there any way out of here? I got to get out of here. And there wasn't. I saw Will and Will says, uh, Denny, tell me how you're doing. How was it? And I said, uh, well, not good. I was forced into bankruptcy. Yeah,
0: because you're contracting. And- sorry, just to set the stage. You're contracting for Enron. I just want to make mm-hmm. sure I got the facts right. And right. You, you know, you're, you're getting a little bit of money in, but you still got the bill collectors calling. Yeah. So, so Will calls the, from Anderson and says,
1: well, I actually met him in the okay, uh, bank lobby by the ATM.
0: <laughs> and uh, how, how appropriate.
1: And uh, I tell you, I, I told Will this many times, but he, he never really understood. If Will would have said, Denny, I know it'll work out. You know, good luck. Right. I would have melted right there on the spot. And yep. instead, he said, Denny, he says, you know, you have a lot of friends with the firm. I want you to come up and I want you to tell me how I can help you. Mm. And that emotional moment saved me. And so as I look forward, as I run into a man I, and there's enough that have lost jobs that have gone through bankruptcy and things like that, I know where they're at. And I know the power of encouragement. And uh, so that's what I go out of my way to do to, to be an encourager, how to, you know, you can't always help, but you can at least encourage and make sure that person knows they're worth your time to, you know, have a cup of coffee or something like that.
0: Let me hit pause there because before I heard this story from you about all of this pain of the bankruptcy and all that, you're, you know, you kind of got the, literally the cushy job. Like I've been to those offices with the cushy carpet at the <laughs> yeah. law firm, you know, like it's in the windows and you, like you described. Like literally Mm -hmm. this cushy job, you go in with your buddies, buy all these REMAX deals right when this, you know, housing, you know, this crisis, oil crisis hits, which just crushes everything in the oil patch, including real estate. And, you know, you go through this bankruptcy and I will get into this probably in episode two about what you're doing in Malawi and all over the globe with generosity and all of these things. In my mind, on the surface, that's who I always pegged you as is the successful business guy who Mm -hmm. sells his company and does cool stuff on the other side of the globe that's what i saw i thought that was cool what i like about this story is this is much more tangible what i've realized from hearing this story today and from our previous conversations is actually for me the core of who you are to me now is you're that caring guy who one-on-one mentors other business people that may need that little word of encouragement or a tap on the back, like will gave you, I mean,
1: exactly. And
0: uh, that is a beautiful thing, man.
1: And it's the power of, so there was a point in time in my life where I just felt overwhelmed with people coming to me. They need a job. They need this, need that. And, and I kind of felt like I needed to solve every problem and I just couldn't. And what I learned was, and I had a life coach who helped me with this. He says, who you are is more important than what you do. And I didn't know what that really meant, but I knew it meant something significant. And so what I've found is being open and available to people who need help. You don't have to solve the problem. Let the Holy Spirit work through you and flow through you. And that's what I pray. I pray, Lord, I am an empty suit. I am an empty suit. When I try to do things, I mess up. I just want your Holy Spirit to flow through me. And if I can help, I can help. And oftentimes people need money, but what they really need, is someone who will listen to their story and encourage them, and I've had success after success.
0: Let me the, let me hit. Let uh, me hit. Sorry, finish your thought, and then I got. Well, I,
1: I I was just going to say that bankruptcy was the most humiliating thing I ever went through. What I found is though that it's one of the most powerful things. You know, nobody asked me about my house in Aspen, or nobody asked mm-hmm. me about, hey, you were <laughs> entrepreneur entrepreneur of the year. Boy, no, they asked me about what was it like going through. The bankruptcy. Yeah. What'd you tell your kids? Yeah. And so what the devil made for evil, God used for good.
0: I mean, and this power of encouragement, man, let's wrap up part one here. And, okay. you know, Denny, at the end of each of these podcasts, and even though this is a two-parter, we've never done a two-parter before. This will be our first one, but I just feel like I don't want to leave this, this session Without, you know, we always try to leave a practical tip. So, like, if you were going to summarize and I know we're on and maybe I'm leading the witness here and feel free to go off the board if the spirit leads you to do so. But, you know, if what's a good way to encourage other people or what's a practical tip out of what you're what you've shared so far that you would leave for somebody to help the next guy?
1: Well, Um, it it really goes back to the scriptures I shared, shared with you about I think God either allows or causes things to happen in your life, and he certainly doesn't cause bad things to come, happen in your life, but he can use them for good. And so like going through that bankruptcy, well, it helped me in a lot of ways, but it also has allowed me to help many men and families with that. As I was going through it, another little story, there was a lady named Barbara Litchfield who I knew well, and she was, I had helped her many times, and we were going to lunch. And I needed money. And so this is a story that I've told probably 50 times. It's a fundamental story. And so, and she says, well, Denny, uh, what are you going to do differently? And I said, oh, oh, Barbara, I don't know anything to do differently. I just need more money. And she says, no, 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 Denny, what are you going to do different? I said, Barbara, I just need more money. And she says, no, I'm serious. What are you going to do different? If you didn't have to do something different, you wouldn't need more money. And she says, Denny, let me tell you it's always easier to ask for money than it is to change. For some people, it's easier to fail than to change. And at the lunch, I was really frustrated. I'm driving home and I'm upset. Then I began to think, you know, we got that thing there at Baton Rouge and we knew, you know, and then at Huntsville. my. And so I began to think that, you know, there were changes I had to make and I just didn't have the. Gumption or courage or yeah. oomph to do
0: it. Didn't want to take the pain.
1: Yeah, and for me it was too late. Yeah, yeah. But as I tell people this story, and what motivates me going forward is, I don't want to go through another bankruptcy, and so I'm aware of, of that choice. And I see people with that choice all the time, and I tell them this story: you have a choice. You want, you think it's about more money, but it's you have to change. What is it you have to change? And are you willing to change? I probably told that fifty times, and. It resonates with people. And and I'm sure there are people who will listen to this that will resonate with it or need to hear that story.
0: Amen. I I think that's a great place to leave it. And if I recap that, what I heard, and and correct me if I'm off base, but what I heard was, you know, sometimes it's easier to ask for money than to to make the changes you need to do. Before you ask for the next check, if you're kind of suffering and you think the money will solve it, maybe think about something strategic uh, that you could do today. I mean, it kind of makes me think of the old line about, you know, the definition of insanity, right, is uh, doing the same thing and expecting different results. It's a little bit down that category. Well, okay, this is like the perfect cliffhanger. Okay, (laughs) we've taken them to the bankruptcy. We have a little bit of a hope of a new gig, but there is great things to come. So let's leave it at that for uh, episode one. And then we'll, uh, so thanks everybody for joining us and tune in next week for uh, episode two with Denny McGuire. Thanks, Denny, for being with us for episode one. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes.